welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. We're going to start today's show talking about something that I think bedevils a lot of travelers. I'm talking about taking trips that aren't just one thing, taking trips that mix business and pleasure. And I hate the word, but we'll call it pleasure travel. I have on the line Alexandra Samuel. She wrote a terrific article for the Wall Street Journal on just this topic. It's called The Do's and Don'ts of Combining Work and Play When Traveling. Hey, Alex, nice to speak with you. Welcome to the Firmer Travel Show. Thanks so much for inviting me. So I have a feeling you have done a lot of of trips that hit both leisure and business. Do you recommend this? Is this something people should do or should they try to keep an iron rail between the two? You know, the the idea that we can separate our work and our personal lives is, I think, a, a lost cause in the age of email <laughs> and mobile phones. And so rather than fighting the inevitable, I think what, I, what works for me and what I see work for many other um, folks is to really embrace the opportunities we have to travel in a different way, uh, to travel more, to to blend work and personal experiences by fitting personal time into business trips and also by fitting business trip uh, content into our personal travels. But you have to do it mindfully, you kind of say in this article. You can't just expect to, you know, say, oh, well, I'll, I'll run off and, and do something in the couple of hours I have here or in the extra day I have here, you're going to probably enjoy your time away from business travel if you plan it, you say in the article. Why is that? Well, I mean, a couple of reasons. First of all, again, based on painful personal experience, if, if you don't go into a trip with a really clear idea of what comes first, work or personal time, you're going to end up feeling constantly pulled between those two poles. And so you really need to be clear. Is this a business trip where you're maybe tacking on a day of personal time or sandwiching a four-hour personal break into the middle of a business trip? Or is this a, a personal vacation, a family vacation where you're going to make room for an hour of work every day or two, or perhaps take a day in the middle of, of your family trip to do something that's professionally rewarding. And once you're clear on, you know, this is the primary purpose of this trip, and here is this other thing I'm also doing, it's a lot easier to, to have a trip that's really fulfilling in, in both ways, even if it's split. I mean, it's okay if it's split, but then it's like, I'm going on this vacation for four days, and then I'm going to do this business trip for four days, but it's not all mushed in together in a fuzzy way where I don't know what I'm doing on any given day. Right. And that's important, not just for you, but because you sometimes bring your family along. You'll bring your kids, you'll bring your husband. And so if they understand those boundaries too, there's going to be less disappointment, right? Ab absolutely. And, you know, we've had some really painful experiences of trying to <laughs> um, bring bring kids along. It's funny, one of, you know, uh, I've heard from a number of readers um, in response to this trip, including other working moms who were kind of incredulous at the idea that I'd traveled with my baby. 
And it forced me to remember, you know, one of my first trips as a, as a working mom, I brought my son along to a conference where he was welcome. And then subsequently to another conference where he was like, super not welcome. And it was such a terrible experience for me as a mom. Somebody literally flamed me, like wrote a a blog post about how terrible this woman with her baby was. And, you know, nobody wants to be that person. I felt bad for intruding on this other person's experience. And happily, a three three month old is too young to be aware that he's unwelcome. But you know, (laughs) there, you know, it's really not doing anybody any favors. If you bring your kids along without a really clear childcare plan and a really clear understanding, if if you are going to be bringing your kid into a room with clients or colleagues, some advanced warning and understanding about how that's going to work. Right, right. Absolutely. But sometimes it can be a wonderful thing to do. Like you, you write about in the article that your child was nine and you knew you had to be in Disney World. And how could you go to Disney World without bringing your child? That, that was truly one of the most serendipitous trips of all time because I had this trip booked to, I uh, had a speaking event at, at Disney World that turned out to fall right in between me leaving one job and starting another. So I just left a week in between. And I took my nine-year-old to Disney during what was actually Halloween week. So in addition to all the usual Disney delights, there was also a crazy amount of Halloween candy. And (laughs) it felt like such a privilege to be able to be there, to do work that I really loved. And then, you know, to find a local child care provider who could look after my kid. And then at the end of that, to just have this wonderful break with my child. And at a moment when I would not otherwise have taken them to Disney World. But those were the opportunities that are there if, yeah. you, if you stay open whenever you have a trip book, right? If you stay open and say, what else might I make of this opportunity? What else could work with this business trip? What else could work with this family trip? Sometimes you won't be able right. to make add-ons, but when you can, it is kind of magic. Absolutely. Well, you you talk about how you go on Facebook to see if you know people in the area. And that's exactly what I do. When I'm traveling somewhere, it's often 90% work. But if I can squeeze in a 10% of that time to reconnect with an old friend, that's what recharges me. That's what makes me, that's what makes me love travel. Well, well, many, many of the, I love travel in many ways. Uh, but reconnecting with with old buddies is is really special. But you no longer go on Facebook to kind of blast the fact that you're going to be in an area unless you know you have a lot of time to see people, right? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty careful because you know it, in this day and age, right? Um, we're connected to so many people on social media. We might not even remember who we're connected to or where they are. And you know, it's pretty hurtful. I've been on on both sides of this equation, right? It's pretty hurtful to see that a friend is in town and hasn't let you know. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm I'm pretty discreet about sharing my trip before the fact or during. And also, frankly, partly because we know, and I, I've done a number of studies now of, of social media envy and travel pictures, travel experiences are at the top of the list. People are so envious of other people's travel experiences. And I, I get mm. it. And I don't want to make my friends like have their nose pressed up against the glass of my trip because I don't like that feeling myself. And so it's, you know, it's kinder, I think, to be a little more selective about what we share about our travels and frankly, to share it after the fact when people's feelings are are not going to be hurt, that you aren't making time for them. And, And it's always easier to ask for forgiveness after the fact and say, you know, I'm sorry I was traveling with my kid. I'm sorry I was traveling on business and I didn't have a window. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you also give some 
excellent tech tips on how to set up your email so that you don't get sucked back into the vortex of work. So so lay it out. What do you do to prep your emails so that, that you can actually have some time away from it? Well, you know, email is the killer of great vacations, right? Because either you are looking at it and not really turning off your work brain, or you're not looking at it and you're worried about what you're missing. And having tried both approaches over the years and found them equally miserable, I've kind of developed a middle road approach, which is I have a separate secret email address I only use when I'm on vacation. And when I'm going on a vacation, I take my primary email address and I put on an autoresponder just about like everybody else. My, maybe what's different about my autoresponder is I don't promise to reply to you because I hate that thing huh. of, you know, getting super chilled out on a two week vacation and then coming home and having to work harder than ever because I have two weeks of email waiting for me. So I say in my autoresponder, yeah. hey, I, I might not work my way through the backlog. I'm going to be back August 15th. If you need a response to this email you just sent, email me August 16th. So that's one part of it. Hmm. And then I set up a mail rule on my primary email account that says, basically, if this incoming message is something I really need to see while I'm on vacation, then forward it to my secret email address. And basically, the only things that go to my secret email address are emails from my speakers bureau so that if I get a speaking invitation, I don't miss it while I'm on vacation. And then if I'm working on a client project, where I know my client is going to need me to make a couple of decisions or, or weigh in at a couple of key points while I'm on vacation, that one specific client goes in my email filter so that their messages get through to me. But all the other random stuff that gets the autoresponder and waits until I come. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I thought that was very smart. And then you had one tip that made me laugh out loud because I have never read a business book of any sort, (laughs) even though I run a small business. But you say, don't read business books on vacation. I would say don't read them at all, but but that may be my uh, weird (laughs) mindset. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, I read business books. I write business books. So, you know, I'm, I'm not going to argue with you on oh, that sorry. one. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I get it. Listen, I I actually don't read a ton of, of nonfiction even when I'm at home. If I'm reading um, business books, it's for a very specific purpose. And when I'm on vacation, I'm just reading musical theater history and fiction novels. But my husband is somebody who reads a lot of business and other kinds of work-related books for pleasure. He's This is a guy who will you know, get in the bathtub with a computer manual. I'm not kidding, just for fun. Um, <laughs> so I, I actually have had to persuade him to leave the business books at home when we're on vacation. It's not very relaxing for me to be in the pool and looking over at, you know, him reading his, his next um, career manual. And so, you know, I think it's, it's great if you enjoy, I mean, it's, it's wonderful if you love your work so much that it feels relaxing to read work related stuff when you're on vacation. But I would argue that the inspiration that comes from getting in the shower when you're stuck on a work problem or going on vacation and letting your mind shift into another state, that just isn't going to happen if you keep thinking about the same kind of topics, doing the same kind of reading that you would do when you're at home or when you're at work. And so the whole point of being on vacation, even if you see it in terms of its like productivity benefits of regenerating you, it, you need to shift your, your mindset and pick something to read that you wouldn't read uh, in your day-to-day life. Mm. And you're going to find yourself not only more relaxed, but you're also going to find yourself having new and and different ideas that you can bring home with you and and back to work at the end of your vacation. Yeah, I love that. So take a mental vacation as well. 
Well, thank you so much, Alex. It's been a delight speaking with you. Great speaking with you. Thank you for inviting me. You know, I'm I'm usually a person who feels like when it comes to hotels, if it's well located and it's not too expensive, I'm in because I feel like, you know, you're unconscious for most of the time that you're at a hotel. But there are some exceptions to that rule. Sometimes the hotel itself determines what the vacation experience will be like. And that's certainly the case with what are called albergo diffusi. To help us define what that term means, we have Susan Portnoy on the line. She wrote a wonderful article for Smithsonian Magazine called How Alberghi Diffusi Turn Villages into Hotels. Hey, Susan, lovely to speak with you. Thanks so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Thanks for having me, Pauline. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with the history of the Albergo Diffusi. And to do that, we have to go back to the 1980s. Who is the star of this story? Sure. The, the gentleman's name is Giancarlo Dallara, and he is a tourism marketing expert. And in 1982, he was asked to come to an area of Carnia, which is in northeastern Italy, to help them figure out how best to bring revenue through tourism to an area that had six years before been decimated by an earthquake. And mm. they were all, you know, these great little villages, and he had to figure out what to do. Yeah. And so you had these little villages, which had been around for hundreds of years, but because of the earthquake and because, frankly, there were more jobs in urban centers, these villages had become depleted of residents, right? And so they wanted to bring maybe a, a new hotel in, but he saw these beautiful ancient villages and, and came up with a different way of doing this, right? Exactly. He felt that to have the correct connection and experience, a, a guest experience, it needed to sort of follow the the feeling and the, of of the the village. And so right. he saw these uh, wonderful but abandoned buildings and dwellings, and thought, "This is I know I need to make this part of this idea." And so he started to formulate what. An albergo do fuso would be, and it's it's you know a really wonderful concept that sort of takes the idea of the connection you have with any destination at a B and B, but with the services and quality of a hotel. Right, and so he took this first abandoned village, and instead of building a separate hotel, he made different buildings within the village, former homes into separate guest dwellings. And then he had a, a central area where there was a restaurant and, uh, and that, thus the concept was born. How common is this today? Are, are other parts of Italy and the world creating albergo diffusi? Well, um, let me step back a little. The sure. concept in Carnia did not evolve then. It was 1902, oh. and it was where he first got his inspiration and where he started to formulate what an albergo diffuso could be. 
And it wasn't until quite later, um, after he'd given you know, conference lectures and things like that, and people would come and say, oh my God, this concept sounds amazing. Where can I go visit one? Huh. And he would say, I will, you will be able to visit it when you make it. <laughs> um, right. It wasn't until later, and it wasn't until an architect in Sarden, uh, Sardinia, in Bosa, Sardinia, who loved the idea of transforming and restoring architecture himself, decided right. to, to take it on. And that's where it started from there. And now there are alberga diffusi across Italy, but not just in Italy, in other parts of the world too, right? Exactly. Uh, it is definitely something that started to spread like, you know, rapid fire. And, and it's it, basically any country that has small villages kind of suffering from depopulation can benefit from this idea. Right. Well, and I thought what was key to it, and it doesn't always happen, but but that this was a way not just to bring in tourists, but also to bring these villages back to life. So a lot of them are what you'd call mixed-use villages. You do still have locals living in the villages, but because they can now be supported by tourism dollars, because their neighbors are tourists, it's bringing these villages back to life. Exactly. And, you know, it gives, it provides opportunities because part of the general concept is that if an albergo diffuso needs, let's say, some, you know, amenities of some sort, they're responsible for getting that through the local communities. So, for example, there's a wonderful albergo diffuso that's within the article called Carippo, which is in Switzerland, in the Italian speaking area of Switzerland, they wanted to have sustainable handmade soaps for their huh. guests. So they ended up going to a woman who made those types of things and started contractually having her make it. Right, right. And I love the way you describe that village. You say that the houses are so close together that from afar, the village looks two-dimensional and you have gorgeous photos of the, the stonework of the villages and these winding streets and these cats wandering between the, the houses. It, this was the very first such albergo diffusi in Switzerland, right? Correct. Correct. It's the it's the official one. Um, other ones had started in past, but if, as you can imagine, creating a hotel out of multiple buildings and things like that takes time and takes sure. money. I mean, Caripo it took it was a process over ten years in fundraising. So yeah, it's it's there's a lot that one has to do, you know, to to make it come a lot to life. And there is an Albergo Diffusi Association, which has some ground rules of, of what this should be. Now, that being said, not every Albergo Diffusi is a member of this association or follows those rules. But, but what were some of the things that they wanted to put in place uh, to make the visitor experience better? Sure. The, the key element according to uh, Professor Dallara, is that he felt that it needs to be 50% hospitality and 50% small village de development and revitalization. So mm. it's meant to have and thought about as it moves forward to be something that helps to revitalize um, a village. Whereas 
other places are just using and creating wonderful experiences, but it may not be in conjunction with that kind of uh, initiative. Right. He also had some very practical rules, like no accommodation should be more than 650 feet from the reception area. Why was that important? Well, he wanted to make sure that any one guest wasn't too far from the quote unquote action, you know, Um, he wanted them to be in the center of town. He wanted to do everything he could to encourage interaction with the local community. Right. And you, you interviewed some visitors, some people who have uh, vacationed in this way. In fact, you you interviewed one co- couple who I think has done this four times in a row just because they fell in love with it. What was it about the experience that draws people back? It is that wonderful connection. It is an experience that's very, very different. A classic hotels, four-star, five-star hotels can offer their a wonderful experience, but it's very professional. If you are in an albergo de fuso, those, the manager is probably the owner and the next door neighbor has probably been a friend for years. So it's as if you're visiting friends and that really transfers over to when you go to a restaurant or any, any of the businesses in that area, they recognize you and they take better care of you there. It's more, it's more natural, more authentic as if you were invited personally. Yeah. Well, it just sounds marvelous. We have many of these actually in Fromers, Italy. We've been recommending them for quite some time. Beyond us, though, is there a way people can find Albergo Diffusi if they want to try this type of vacation? Yes, there is a website. If you you type in Albergo Diffusi, there's um, the association website. It's a little... 1990 in terms of the technology um, (laughs) tends to focus on what's most important. And that's consulting with, you know, other uh, prospective hotel owners and helping them with that. But there is a list there and, and it kind of depends. You can, I, I would, for my research, I would say, you know, Alberghi de Fusi in Germany and various places and see what it came up. Some name their hotel, like Caripo Albergo de Fusi, is in the title of their of their name. But huh. some don't. Some, you know, complete, call it something completely different, but use that model um, because they feel it's important. Yeah. Well, it it's... I, I have never actually done this. Have you ever stayed in one? I have not yet. Yes, um, Coripo. Um, the ah. yeah, the the photos and things that you see in there are mine, and oh. it was lovely. I was there at the very tail end of the season, so it was quite quiet, but I loved it just for that reason. It was amazingly beautiful surroundings. There is plenty of places to sort of hike. The the restaurant that is part of the hotel is literally the only restaurant in Caripo because huh. we only have 10, 10 residents and three wow. of those are the managers. 
So <laughs> there, there you have a lot to go, but wonderful things. Part of the Albergo de Fuso is, is an, an element of a overall re, uh, revitalization and preservation project. And so they've done other things that, oh, in the project area where they completely um, restored a mill and they are now making cornmeal in the same manner as they did 700 years ago and selling that for additional additional income and also it serves the restaurant. They are rewilding some of the chestnut orchards so that they can sell chestnuts. They are huh. you know fixing the terraces that have come under disrepair so that the th- there's more agriculture for the restaurant. So it really is it's only been open since June 2022. And it's already moving forward pretty quickly. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Well, thank you so, so much for appearing on the Fromer Travel Show. Really appreciate it. Oh, I had a great time. Thank you. So there have been a lot of travel trends that have come out of the pandemic, but one of the better ones is that at the height of the pandemic, we all discovered nature. We all discovered the joy of going outdoors once again, and that does not seem to be going away. We uh, The national parks are still experiencing record visitation numbers, as are state parks, but that has put somewhat of a strain on the system. So intrepid entrepreneurs have risen up to help with this situation. And I have one of them as my guest. Her name is Shannon Connolly. She is the co-founder of a new company called Romestead. Hey, Shannon, welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So tell us all about Romestead. How is it going to solve this problem for us? Well, we experienced the same thing. Um, we started camping shortly before COVID. And when COVID hit, we, like many others, noticed that there was a shortage of, of places to camp. It was hard to find available spots unless you were booking months and months in advance. Um, yeah. And so um, for that reason and many others, um, we began exploring the idea of launching our own campground brand. Um, and so that's how Romestead was born. And we're launching our very first location um, right next to the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. We're literally right, right next to the park border, which is just really amazing, just outside of Gatlinburg, Tennessee in Cosby. Well, that sounds like the perfect place because that's the most visited national park in the United States, right? It is. It is. And that's one of the things we love about this particular campground location. You know, the Smokies is a very, very busy national park. And a lot of the places you visit inside or near the park are, are you know, packed with tourists. And that's one of yeah. the things we love about our location specifically is we're in a very quiet part of the park. And you could theoretically come spend a week, you know, long weekend or a week at our campground and never set foot in the crazy tourist areas that have become so popular here. There's we're minutes from some of the best hiking, um, whitewater rafting, zip lining, all the other adventures that you think about when you think of the Smoky Mountains. But but just a little bit on the quieter side. But this this uh, campground, you're hoping that this is just the first, right? You're going to have a whole slew of campgrounds in the future. 
it must be hard to find empty spaces next to these national parks. What's your strategy for for making this into a chain? It is. Um, it's very challenging. It took us about a year and a half of planning to find this particular location. And even this was a bit of luck for us. We kind of stumbled across it. So we're, we're exploring both buying existing campgrounds um, and buying empty land and developing them into a kind of our vision for, for what we want these campgrounds um, to be. So, so what is that vision? Because you, yeah. you, you have a lot of competition. You have KOA, which is the big giant Absolutely. in the field. You have a lot of mom and pop operations. How will Romestead be different? What are you adding to the market? Yeah, so we've done, I, we are camper owners as well, and we've traveled all over the United States in our camper with our kids. And what we find when we travel is that a lot of times we can't find campgrounds that offer the level of experience that, that we want in a place that we want to stay. We, we want someplace that is beautiful, but also offers a high level of service and a high level of amenities. We love camping in our camper, but we also love staying in boutique hotels. And that's kind of what we're looking to do with Romestead. We're looking to, to bridge that gap between traditional campgrounds that may be a little more mom and pop, may have a different level of cleanliness, bridge that gap with, um, you know, boutique hotels that really do a great job of um, style and um, modern experiences and amenities and things like that. So that's what Romestead is looking to bring to the table. Well, I I, it sounds like a good concept, but I can't quite picture it. Yeah. I mean, you're you're out in the in the wilderness. Uh, people are there for nature. How do you bring style to a campground? Yeah. Well, so a, a couple different ways. Um, first and foremost, I think a lot of that is in the design of um, of the buildings on the property. So. I think when people think about camping and um, cabins and things like that in rural areas like national parks, the idea is, is is that they have to be rustic, and that means you know wood on wood on wood, right? You know, plaid um, bedding <laughs> and shower curtains and and all of that, and and frankly, very closed off. And what we're looking to do with our cabins and our lodge. On, on this property and all of our future properties is to really make them open spaces where you can view nature from inside and ha have it be a very a, a space that flows both indoors and outdoors, providing huh. a gathering space at our lodge for uh, people throughout the property to come and, and gather together with fire pits and yard games. And on top of that, something that many campgrounds don't necessarily offer is a level of food service. So we'll have an espresso bar in the mornings and some breakfast options, some grab and go sandwiches during the day so that you can take your sandwich and go on your hike. And then when you're done with your right. hike, you can come back, prop your feet up at the fire pit while your kids play and enjoy a cocktail or a craft beer from, from the bar in our lodge, as well as some dinner options as well. So you can explore during the day, but you have your base camp with you know that coffee in the morning that everybody loves and that cocktail to come yeah. home to in the evening. So it's, it's kind of, it's, it's both from the design perspective and from the, the amenities that we plan to offer. Well, that's very interesting. You know, I just finished uh, editing a guidebook to New Zealand. Oh. And this sounds very much like what they, they have in New Zealand. Yes. There are, uh, there are certain campgrounds 
that have made names for themselves by having because in in New Zealand it's it's a campground almost always has freestanding lodgings as well as places to pitch a tent or park an RV. And so there's this, I can't, I'm blanking on the name of the company, but they've created a whole bunch of really unique campgrounds, uh, some of which you can't even imagine that they exist. Like one of them, they're they're big into rugby there. One campground pops up uh, on the site of the major stadium in Auckland, New Zealand, and you can can, uh, sleep on the pitch, uh, which is, you know, for, for rugby fans is a dream come true. Well, how do people find out more about you or book? Our website is www.romestead.com. And we're and that's live. spelled R-O-A-M-stead.com. Yes, like homestead, but roaming. <laughs> um, so yeah, our website is live for bookings. We will be opening this summer. Currently, bookings are f- are beginning August 1st. And we're, we're just so excited to introduce this new kind of camping experience to, to people who love the outdoors as much as we do. Well, it sounds terrific. M- many congratulations and, and good luck. Thank you so much. And that's it for this week's show. I thank you so much for listening. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. I'll see you next week. No